Meanwhile, just outside of Gotham City. Bad antenna deployed. Atomic microphones power. Bad check. One, two. Testing. Back computer online. And processing. Affirmative. Audio tapes to speed. Atomic batteries to power. Turbines to speed. Roger. Ready to podcast. Transmitting. Greetings, citizens of Gotham, and welcome to the first ever pilot episode, Maiden Voyage of the Retro Cool Nerd Podcast. A retro look at all things cool and nerdy. I am the retro cool nerd, Jimmy the Gent. Broadcasting from my secluded study located deep inside the walls of stately Wayne Manor. You might also, or should I say hopefully, might recognize me as one of the co-hosts of the Saturday Morning Serial podcast. Well, those boys, Marky and Grim Shea, over at the aforementioned Saturday Morning Serial Studios, have finally challenged me to come up with my own podcast, and I said, hold my battering, boys. Now, since we can all agree that there can never be enough Batman-themed podcasts out in the multiverse... I slid down into the cave and got right to work. My love of the original 66 Batman TV show that I grew up with has also led me to present this, a celebration of all things retro, cool, and a little nerdy, mostly through the lens of the 66 TV show. Throughout my adventures as a mild-mannered Comic-Con reporter for BleedingCool.com, I have met and befriended various members of the Hollywood elite. Stars, voice actors, animation directors, and all sorts of pop culture fans and experts. They'll all be stopping by for a chin wag about Batman and his friends, all with the goal of hopefully entertaining and educating you just a little bit. But I'm excited to get to our first episode of the Powcast, featuring the 80-year celebration of the first sidekick, Robin the Boy Wonder, starring a very special guest, but more on that in just a second. As most of you listeners might know, Robin first appeared alongside Batman 80 years ago on the cover of Detective Comics number 38, way back in April of 1940. I'm sure none of you were around back then. Originally created by Bob Kane, Bill Finger, and Jerry Robinson, Robin the Boy Wonder was meant to be a bright and youthful sidekick to the Dark Knight, serving as a Watson to Batman Sherlock Holmes, someone for Batman to talk to and help the detective figure out the clues. In addition to giving Batman someone to talk out loud to, Robin was a way to attract young readers to the DC Comics at the time, and it their gamble paid off. Robin quickly garnered overwhelmingly positive critical and fan reception, doubling the already skyrocketing sales of the Batman titles that he appeared in. As one half of the dynamic duel, Robin was Batman's sidekick from 1940 through the early 1980s until the characters set aside the Robin identity and became the independent superhero Nightwing. There have been several other characters that have taken up the mantle of Robin. Most notably, there's uh, Jason Todd, Tim Drake, Carrie Kelly from The Dark Knight Returns, Stephanie Brown, and his own son uh, spawned from Talia Rejazgul, Damian Wayne. But for the sake of time on our maiden voyage of this podcast, I'm just going to limit our conversation to Dick Grayson. Now, a lot of people have pay, played the Boy Wonder since his comic debut on the live screen. 
The first to don the mask and cape was a young lad named Douglas Croft. He was in 1943's Batman serial, and then in 1949, Johnny Duncan took the role in the Batman and Robin serial. Both of these serials were 15 chapters in length, and uh, a slightly racist look into what kids had to enjoy back then as far as superhero entertainment. Um, So next for Robin, live action, we jump ahead to the mid-90s when Chris O'Donnell played the Boy Wonder alongside Val Kilmer in Batman Forever. And then again with George Clooney in the forgettably ice-pun-laden Batman and Robin. Uh, There's still some good stuff in that movie, even if most folks don't like it. We even get uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt in The Dark Knight Rises, kind of plays Robin, even if it's only in name. And that brings us to the latest incarnation is uh, Brenton Thwaites, who plays a very grown-up, very angsty, very foul-mouthed, but very badass Dick Grayson on the DC Universe's Titans. If you haven't seen that, I highly advise you to check that out. Um, That's a pretty big list. Am I forgetting anyone? Holy Barracuda, I almost forgot. The Robin of my youth. The man who made me want to wear tights myself. Mr. Burt Ward. He's here today with us for our pilot episode of the Powcast. Uh, He'll be joining us in just a couple minutes. But let me tell you a little bit about him. Born Burt John Jervis Jr. on July 6, 1945. He has been in show business since he was a young toddler. And with a career that is as long and distinguished as my bat pole, Bert is arguably best known for playing Robin the Boy Wonder over the years. Starting on January 12, 1966, he first took the world by storm playing the Boy Wonder on the hit TV series Batman, followed quickly by the smash theatrical film of the same name. In 1977, Bert voiced his half of the dynamic duo on the Saturday morning animated series The New Adventures of Batman. In 1979, he shaved his legs and put on the tights for what would be the last time in the gut-wrenching two-episode pilot for The Legends of the Superheroes. One was titled The Roast, and the other one was titled The Challenge. They're pretty bad by almost anyone's metric, but still hold a pretty special place in my heart. He also voiced Robin on The Simpsons, and in 2016, Burt reunited with his longtime friend and co-star Adam West to once again portray the dynamic duo in the animated film Batman Return of the Caped Crusaders. They got together again once again in 2017 for Batman vs. Two-Face. Two pretty good movies. Most recently, in 2019, as his earth disappeared around him, Burt uttered the the famous phrase, Holy Crimson Skies! on the live-action CW television crossover event, Crisis on Infinite Earths. Now, he likes to be known as the Canine Crusader. In 1994, Bert and his wife Tracy founded the charitable organization called Gentle Giants Products, which rescues giant breed dogs such as Great Danes and some smaller breed dogs as well. Bert and Tracy operate a communal home for dogs where they nurse 40 to 55 dogs at a time back to health, then put them up for adoption at a faculty in California. But I call you here today not to listen to my history lesson about Bert Ward, but to share with you my conversation with the one the only boy wonder himself, Robin. Bert was kind enough to take some time out of his busy schedule to help launch our pilot episode of the Powcast and talk to us about his life in the tights and his life raising dogs. So, without any further ado, I give you Bert Ward. 
Hello. Great, great. Thank you for being so patient. I was at the other end of our property. We have five acres here, so it takes a little bit to get to one side or the other. Well, uh, that was a pretty good time for covering five acres, if I don't, if you don't ask. <laughs> Right. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, how, how are you doing today? Fantastic, fantastic, and very excited to do the interview with you. And uh, you know, anything you want to ask, I'm happy to you know talk about. Oh, I really appreciate it. Well, this is uh, our very first episode of the Retro Cool Nerd. We're calling it a Powcast. And uh, we are we're really really appreciate you taking the time out answer some of our questions. We're celebrating uh, 80 years of Robin in our first episode. So who better to have Robin himself? Uh, You're right, and, and you sound pretty good for being around for 80 years. Uh, well, <laughs> I've only been around for thankfully a portion of those 80 years. Uh, uh, we're uh, mostly celebrating the character and my and uh, mine and my listeners' love of all things uh, Batman and Robin. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, uh, the Robin premiered in Detective Comics nine, number twenty one twenty eight, March 6, 1940. 26 years later, uh, Batman premiered uh, January 12, 1966. And 54 years later, almost to the date on the 9th of January, 2020, you got your star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. That's true. You know, it only took a little over 50 years. Right. I tell people I am a patient person, but... I don't know. Fifty years sounds like a long time to wait. Oh, yeah. I think maybe a lot of people might not have waited that long. <laughs> um, what was it like? Share with me, if you don't mind. Um, so after such a long haul, uh, looking out over that crowd, I was I was there in the press pool as you received your award. So I was as you were receiving it. I'm wondering what's that feeling like of looking at generations of fans, of celebrities, all these people here for you for one day to celebrate what you've done for Hollywood and for with your charity. What, what, what's that like looking at, into all those faces? You know, it, it's a great feeling. It, it warms your heart, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, uh, I think of all of these people as part of our, what I would call our Batman family, mm-hmm. um, you know, and uh, it's a, uh, and I don't know if afterward you we I certainly if I knew I, I don't know if you were able to come around the corner to our the special event that we put on in the afternoon at the Hollywood Museum. Yes, I did. I did make it up for the uh, Batusi party, and uh, yeah, right there you go. And my wife and I had a great time with that. We had people. For, we, in fact, we showed, as you know, some videos, and we got people from the Wailing Wall dancing the Batusi. All of this, of course, for world peace and to try to tell people. Hey, take a break from all the stress and all the strife. And I mean, my gosh, our our, our country has become so divided. But, you know, let's take a break and dance the Batusi, have some fun, and you know, try to find uh, something in common with other people and make a better world for all of us. In any event, we had uh, quite a few videos that had come into us from various parts of the world. You know, from Scotland and Australia, and actually, there's quite a few more that we're just now getting from people they're really celebrating in many countries simultaneously. And this is the first of hopefully many events uh, over, you know, one each year that mm-hmm. we can keep encouraging, trying to bring more people into the fold with a, with the goal of making a, a better world for all of us to live in. Yeah. I was going to uh, ask you about that. So that's hopefully going to be an annual event. Yes. Yes. Very nice. And, uh, it, it, you know, it really started off pretty good and, and it was pretty hard. I got to tell you something. To start getting people 
from other countries to, you know, participate and get their videos. And, and you know, it was it's so funny because a lot of these people had their own costumes, Batman, Robin, mm-hmm. you know, villains. You know, it, it was a great uh, it, it was a great thing. And my wife put that on. Tracy did an amazing job putting that together. I, I, I really was uh, wondering if that was too much of a thing for her to take on, but she it was a terrific event, and so many people. In fact, we're right now we're just editing, taking this this long because of so many videos coming in from all over the world, editing it together, and we're finally going to re- release it like uh, on the uh, on the internet is like a thirty minute uh, kind of a special. Really awesome, I think, to have uh, been a part of that, and for you guys to pull that together. I've never seen anybody kind of uh, pull together, you know. It, just in such a fashion, uh, with underneath the Batman banner, if you will, with the Batusi. Um, yeah. Oh, and I'll tell you, we had a lot of the top Warner Brothers executives there. Mm-hmm. We had a great time. The heads of, of several of the legal departments were there. And, I mean, we just everybody is like a big family. And you know, I have this long-term contract with Warner Brothers, and, and they've been great. And the people at DC Comics, which is one of the divisions, of, you know, that put all all the Batman comics out. And, Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and I've done I've done some special stuff for there. I I currently on their um, their streaming service. I do an introduction of a lot of the uh, the, the shows that they've done. I, I've done uh, quite a bit of introductions for that. For the that's the DC Universe, Bert, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and uh, and uh, and it's so funny because when I went into film this, I thought, well, it's one of these things where you know you say hi, I'm reward. And, you know, here's here's a show that they produced then and this and that, you know, like two or three sentences. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, these were like three pages, single space of dialogue. I was doing, I think, like almost five minutes of pure dialogue to explain all the details because, you know, they're very fan-oriented. And, and the people that really are into comic books, and, I mean, they want to know this and that and every. I mean, and it's so funny throughout years of me making personal appearances, I always had people come up to me and, and ask me questions that I couldn't figure out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're like, like, oh, I remember that Joker show, uh, The Joker is Wild. And I said, oh, yeah, I remember that. And well, remember when you were fighting those, there were six dudes. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. the other people, well, what were the name of the, of the stuntman? Well, I don't remember the name of the stuntman. <laughs> you know? but, but, but people are real dedicated fans, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I recently enjoyed a couple, I think it was last week, the piece that they had that you did about Robin, the 80 Years of Robin celebration. And uh, I thought that was that was pretty dense. There was a lot of uh, material there. There's a lot of information, but you handled it like a pro. You made it look easy. Oh, well, uh, thank you. Now, I, I'm trying to figure out there was one that was done by Warner Brothers, and then there's another one that we did uh, for uh, BBC in the U.K., and I don't know uh, which one that was. And then I did another one, a third one, for Australian television. It was really in-depth. Wow. Uh, so it, 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 what's really interesting is, in other words, it's not just a U.S. you know, celebration of the 80 years. It's a, it's a worldwide celebration. Yeah, what's, what is that, uh, what's that like when you go, or I don't know if you, so much if you go overseas physically these days, but when you talk to fans – Say, I know England has a very big fan base and Australia has a very big fan base. What's it like to talk to fans from other countries that still share the same passion as we do over here in the States? Well, well, first of all, let me tell you, it's not just limited to the English-speaking 
countries. This is worldwide. I mean, Batman was shown in 104 countries worldwide. And uh, and by the way, uh, I have this new technique that my wife actually he, he figured out, and it's very complex, but we are now able to do virtual appearances, okay? And, and let me tell you why it is fantastic, because there are places that, around the world that I'm just not going to go, you know? And, sure. And, and, uh, uh, but, but by doing this virtually, and, and what it consists of is there's a special technology that is, uh, it could be connected to a, like a giant 85-inch television, okay? And, and what happens is people can come and meet me, all right? Now, granted, you can't shake hands because it's through television. Right. And, you know, and it's not 100%, you know, you know, in person, but in a way it is in person because in the past, I would sign an autograph for someone and then, you know, they would leave and then afterwards, I guess, they would show their family and friends that autograph, right? Mm-hmm. Well, now we can use a technology to not only sign an autograph in the same Sharpie pen that I use to sign a, a color photo, but the same color photo that is printing out with my actual signature as I'm signing it. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's something. Yeah. That, so that they're getting a truly, it's done, you know, through, uh, you know, the Internet. Mm-hmm. When it, it, it's signing it with exactly my signature with the same pen that I use on the same photograph that they would be getting. But there's an additional benefit. The additional benefit is when we're doing this virtually and they're talking to me on the screen, all right, their image shows up in the top left corner of the screen. In other words, when they're talking to me, they can see themselves speaking to me and we can produce a video a digital video of that meeting. So when they leave, they're not just leaving with an autographed photo. They're leaving with a digital video that they can, you know, put out on the Internet. They can show their family or friends. It's like um, a great way to show that they really did meet me, you know, and I got to meet them. And they see themselves on the screen, and it's a personal conversation that is recorded that through all these years of making personal appearances, over 50 years, you know, unless there was somebody that came up with a camera and unless the the place that I was working allowed it, which most of them didn't, mm-hmm. there wouldn't be any videos of me meeting people. But now everybody can have one. So it really, when you consider it, and also we're going to be putting out some really special collector's items, not just a photo, but really special things that are, are all mounted and it you know becomes like a big presentation that people can put up uh, on their wall, you know, scenes from the show, commentary, signed autograph photos, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you great stuff. And you said is that something that you're working on or is that up and running right now? Is that something that you're doing? Well, we're working on but we already have tested it and it is up and running. And it's now a matter of getting uh, you know a situation where we can have somebody go to that location or somebody in the location that we send the printer to and the autograph of the photos that are going to be autographed mm-hmm. and get them set up with the special uh, electronic equipment, uh, which is, is not too big of a deal. It's actually fairly, fairly simple and easy to do, but it's the technology is 
state of the art, and it was never here until the last couple of years to even be able to do this. Now it's going to open the door for not just me, but for celebrities and people all over the world to make virtual appearances. Every every hot celebrity will be able to appear anywhere in the world, you know, uh, this way, and and be able to do this where they can have autographed photos, they can have videos of their event, you know, um, or if they choose to go that that deep into it. Mm-hmm. I've I've done so many appearances, probably more than any other actor. I I was on the road for 25 years. I mean, more well, altogether, like almost 50 years, but. For 25 of those years, where I did 300 cities a year for 25 years. Now, you talk about living out of a suitcase. That's a lot of moving. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Sometimes I would be in a city for two days, but sometimes I would hit three cities in one day. All Oof. of this was arranged as a tour, just like you have the rock stars that you know make their tours. And in fact, something of interest to your listeners, a little bit of trivia is that Adam West and I hold eight arena records oh, wow. in the United States, more than any rock group ever held. In these, like, for example, in Detroit, Cobo Hall, mm-hmm. 188,000 paid attendance over one weekend. 188,000? You know, it's way above um, uh, McCormick Place in Chicago. I mean, there are arenas around the country where we hold, still hold those records that have never been topped because, you know, we would make it a, a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday appearance. So collectively, that was more than any any stars. Sure. Appearance there. That, um, that's a lot of handshaking. <laughs> Only handshaking. Um, Well, well, that kind of leads me into what else I wanted to ask you about in the, uh, you know, things got off to a pretty quick jump right there with the success of the show, right? The first, you made the first, shot the first season, then you shot the movie and kind of rolled right into the second season. And it seems like like promoting it was as much of a monster or a job as, as it was filming the show. So was there like we're again this is our first show so we're talking about uh first impressions. Uh do you remember the first time that you were maybe out on stage in a public appearance in costume that you kind of felt overwhelmed by what was going on like like the the crowd reaction how many people were out there? Okay, well I do as a matter of fact. Oh, you know, certain things in all of our lives are something that you don't forget. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? They're vivid and it's like you know, they're in front of you today, even though they happened years ago. Right. So let, let me give you the actual first example. Um, when I was filming Batman, it started in September of 1965. Uh, I I was filming because the show aired January 12, 1966, and it was a very complicated show to make. It was, it was not a typical television show that had a crew of 30. We had a crew of 80 people. And the reason it was so big was because there were so many effects and so many explosions and sets and things that had to work, mechanicals and all of that stuff. Okay? Mm-hmm. And um, I was by far the youngest person on the set. I was 20, going on 21 mm-hmm. at the time we started. And uh, the closest person in age to me was Adam. He was 37. All the rest of the people on that set were, you know, these are seasoned pros that they use, you know, mm-hmm. top people uh, in camera and directing and all that stuff. And most of these men were like, and some women, in their 50s and 60s. 
quite as glamorous making a show as you might think. You basically get dressed in your costume, get all this makeup on, and go into a uh, soundstage, and you wait 45 minutes while mm-hmm. they uh, light a scene, right? And then you work for 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. And then you go sit down and you wait another 45 minutes, right? Mm-hmm. Well, for somebody young, as, as I was, 20 years old, and most guys my age were probably out, I don't know, in college. I mean, I, I left my third year at UCLA to, to do the show. But, you know, their, their lives were actually a little bit, probably a little bit more fun than mine was. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, to be in this very heavy costume and hard to move and, and full of makeup and sitting around waiting to work and you work for 30 seconds and you wait another 45 minutes to work for another 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. So, so I didn't really get out until it was, I believe, March. Uh, the show aired in January and I made my first appearance in March. At, uh, in Tacoma, Washington, at a store that was in a, a what they call a strip mall. It was not an indoor mall; it was an outside kind of mall, and it was called the B&I Circus Store. And what was unique about the store? Just imagine a big merchandising store that had wild animals in cages. In other words, you can be shopping for T-shirts and like <laughs> the tiger. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, Bingo Tiger. I mean, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and there were I mean, all kinds of wild animals. You know what I mean? And and it was just an amazing thing. And uh, but when I went there, because uh, now Adam West at the time, he that weekend I went up for a weekend. It was my very first personal appearance. I'd never made an appearance. Okay. So and and you have to understand if you're inside a soundstage and there's nobody your age and you don't really meet anybody, and, and on the weekends you're so exhausted from working 14 hours a day in that costume that you just either sleep or, you know what I mean, go lie on the beach as I was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, you're not really rea- you know getting a reaction from the public. You don't really know, you know, I mean, you hear that it's very popular, but you don't know it, you know, you don't experience it. Right. So at this appearance, um, as, as I found out just before the appearance, that uh, I was going to appear a Friday, uh, I mean, excuse me, a Saturday and a Sunday, but I went up on a Friday. But people were on the Wednesday before the weekend appearance were literally camping out all around the mall and up to three blocks away from the mall that they could, traffic could get in. <laughs> and and the, the mall decided to get all kinds of security, and they rented the University of Washington football team the first 11 guys on offense on defense to be like, you know, not so much a bodyguard, just to keep order and not, you know, and not have all this, you know, magic. Mm-hmm. They expected a large crowd. They handed out raffle tickets that exceeded that median of 310,000 raffle tickets. Oh. 310,000. Um, we couldn't get in through the front. We had to get in through the back and all of this stuff to finally get in into the mall. And I had to dress into my costume on one end of this mall and then to work on the other end of this mall. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it was, it's still like outside, it's going in a covered area, but it's still out, it's not an indoor mall. And all I can tell you was it was a really amazing experience. You just have 22 people around you 
trying to escort you through this uh, crowd that even even though it's on the other end of the mall, it's still a crowd. Yeah, sure. And, and a funny thing happened that I'll never forget. There were two elderly ladies. Uh, I was walking in my car with all these football, giant football players, and these two elderly ladies were coming the other way. Apparently, they hadn't seen Batman. But they <laughs> took one look at me, and one lady turned to the other and said, Oh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> imagine that that's uh, yeah that, that especially back in there when that with all the fervor back then yeah uh, yeah i and, and i'll tell you there are some shopping malls uh in on out on long island that we went to where i couldn't even see the into the parking lot on the other side it, i mean honestly it was the biggest thing i ever saw and there was standing room only where they thought that they had over forty thousand people standing in this parking lot forty thousand and Adam and I were up on the stage, and it was just, you know, it was all part of the, the presentation that we did over those three days. Mm-hmm. And it was just insane. It was just, it was like nothing that I had ever experienced before. And then, of course, you come back, and there you are on Monday morning on that cold stuff. <laughs> you know, there you are. You know, you're, you're, and I had to keep a robe on to keep warm enough because they, you know, they keep these sound stages really cool and air-conditioned. Because of, at the time, you see, today's world, they have lights that are very sophisticated that aren't hot. Mm-hmm. But in those days, they had to use these giant arc lamps. Mm-hmm. And these things were like, oh, 20 feet tall. I mean, they, they, they look like the things that you, when you, when you, you see an event that's put on outside and see these searchlights, mm-hmm. you know, that are crisscrossing in the sky. Imagine those big searchlights on a 20-foot giant pole like a three feet thick to hold it. I mean, those things, if they ever fell over, it'd kill somebody. But but because of the heat, it was just massive, the heat, they had to have massive air conditioning, you know, on, on these sound stages. Mm-hmm. Um, it was quite an event to, to, in the experience of, of filming was not exactly what you might have thought it was. 
in addition to and then uh in addition to that you're wearing all that wool and satin and uh tights and uh, there's not a whole lot of exposed skin for for you to breathe so you've got to be sweating up quite a storm oh i tell you within five minutes there was a film of water between <laughs> my legs and the tights so it's not it was really it was i used to call it my python pants because they nearly strangled me to death yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so, if I can ask you, uh, maybe you can dispel or confirm a rumor that uh, that I've heard a couple times uh, over the years about the show. When, uh, if you don't mind me asking, when you were filming the episode with Vincent Price and Egghead, there was the big um, uh, egg fight at the at the end of the episode, and it yeah, kind that was a lot of fun. Right, and uh, the, the rumor is that. Um, um, Adam and Vincent uh, had had maybe set aside a plan to get more eggs on you. Can you uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Like, oh, absolutely, they, they definitely did. Yeah. But the way they did it, uh, the way they did it was it was kind of funny because you know you have to understand. Not only, I mean, the show was so immense and so successful, but it also took I told you eighty men to to really and and, and some women to 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 handle the show. And there were so many effects that, for the most part, Adam and I were basically left alone in terms of the scenes we did. Yes, they'd say, okay, well, you're at the back computer here, mm -hmm. uh, or you're in the battlefield of Ishtar. But nobody ever told us how to say our lines, or the attitude, or anything. They left us alone. And that's why I believe it was so successful. One of the reasons, there were many reasons, the color and the and everybody put together the villains and the costumes. I mean, everybody mm -hmm. put their two cents in and, and did a fabulous job. But the, 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 there was a special chemistry that Adam and I had. And had we been directors, say, well, don't say it like this, do this, like they do in some television shows, it never would have had that chemistry. We were left alone. And it's so funny because Adam and I, I met Adam like 15 minutes before our screen test in 1965, mm -hmm. we screened together. And in five minutes, the two of us were laughing. We got along so well. We never stopped laughing for more than 50 years. I mean, we really were friends. On some weekends, we'd go play tennis. I mean, we, it's not the typical, you know, co-star relationship that you hear about in Hollywood where people don't get along. We got along fantastic. We were, we were very good friends. Our families were friends. I mean, it was, it was a great, fun thing, and, and I, I loved Adam, you know what I mean? He was a, a mentor to me, and, uh, and you know, it was just a great relationship. But Can this be the ghastly end of our hero? Will Bert escape? Will he finish his stories in time? For the answers to these and many other questions, stay tuned. Same POW time, same POW channel. Welcome to Hollywood History with our good friend Donnell Dadigan. Donnell is the president and founder of the world-famous Hollywood Museum and the historic Max Factor Building, which is located in Hollywood at the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Highland Avenue. I would say just about 20 steps away from the Hollywood Walk of Fame. The Hollywood Museum, which is actually inside the Max Factor Building, shows off 100 years of Hollywood history, exhibiting the glamour of Hollywood, legends, and stars, past and present, and even some future stars that are in the making. 
the Hollywood Museum exhibits a slew of screen news costumes, props, photographs, scripts, cars, personal artifacts, posters, and different memorabilia from decades of films and TV shows. After purchasing the building in 1993, it took Donnell about 10 years of restorations to bring the Max Vector building back to its original state. Then she started filling it with collections of Hollywood's history. In our first episode of Hollywood History, Donnell starts our series by telling us about... We opened in 2003, and it okay. took me that long to restore the building. I mean, it was a fight at every turn. Uh, anyone who lives in a home that's not brand spanking knows, knows that, you know, you've got to maybe redo the plumbing, you have to redo the pipes, sure. you have to redo the air conditioning, or you have to put air conditioning in, uh, you have to redo the heating, and you have to uh, just redo all the electrical, and maybe fix some windows, this and that. Well, this was Max Factor's 42,000 square foot factory, where he manufactured all of the very famous Makeup products. Oh. Not only to uh, uh, the public, but also what he put on movie stars and uh, was uh, worked on at the different studios. You know, it's in this very building in the lobby, and I'm so thrilled we visited the museum because in this lobby, what's exciting is that uh, it looks exactly like it looked in 1935. And it's in this very lobby where Max Factor turned around uh, the public's thought about how indecent and how immoral it was for women to wear makeup. And so he got uh, high society ladies to come in and to try his makeup. And as long as it was prudently worn and prudently applied, it was okay. So if you put a little eyeshadow on and some eyeliner and very little rouge and some lipstick uh, and maybe a little face powder, you were okay. Because in those days in the 30s, they called women who wore makeup that were not dancing on stage or in front of a the camera, they called them hussies. And that was mm -hmm. the vernacular for a prostitute in the 30s. That was the that they used. So Max Factor was able to get around that. And he did that in this uh, lobby of the Max Factor building where now all the visitors to the Hollywood Museum must enter through. And uh, we've had a lot of fun. We've restored it to look just like it did uh, in 1935 when he opened the doors. And uh, there's the world-famous makeup rooms, the Redheads Only Room, where Lucille Ball received her signature red hair. You know she was not born a redhead, contrary to popular belief. Oh. You know, and her daughter... Lucy Arnaz uh, told me, you know, mom had uh, what she called mousy brown hair. <laughs> and, you know, it's the blonde building room. It's really kind of fun because I cannot tell you how many celebrities and their children and relatives uh, do come to the museum and love to share stories about their family members having come to the Max Factor building and having been made up by Max Factor or Max Factor Jr. And uh, in in the makeup room you mentioned, you have a bunch of a little uh, a fair collection of that history, right? Like uh, those. Oh yeah. Yeah, wasn't there manuals and uh, am I some sort of beauty measuring device? Am I correct? Oh my goodness, good for you! You know, Jimmy, that's pretty amazing. 
the beauty calibrator. That's what I'm sorry, the beauty calibrator, yeah. Yes, and we put that in the brunettes only room, and that's for all the great brunettes, you know, whether it was Joan Crawford or Elizabeth Taylor, you know, uh, so many of them uh, had gotten their looks there, not to say that they were not beautiful to begin with, but Max Factor heightened their beauty or created their look for a specific film, you mm-hmm. know. And in the blondes only room, I mean, it's where Marilyn Monroe became a blonde. I mean, and so many people tell me, but I thought Marilyn Monroe was born a blonde. Mm. Yes, yes, she was. But like most natural blondes, by the time she hit her teen years, her hair turned dark and her hair got darker. In fact, the first time she was married when she was about 16 years old, it shows that she had uh, light brunette hair. She was a brunette. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, But it was in the blondes only room where Max Factor uh, gave her the blonde hair color that we recognized her uh, in all her films. And how he came about that, which is interesting, is that Marilyn Monroe told Max Factor her favorite movie star was Jean Harlow. And Max Factor, as the story is told, smiled broadly from ear to ear. He really grinned because, you know, he created Jean Harlow's blonde hair, and he called it platinum blonde. Jean Harlow was the first movie star to wear his new hair color platinum blonde. Jean Harlow was a blonde, but Max Factor chose to heighten her blondeness to make it more racy and stand out in the black and white films. So when you look in a black mm-hmm. and white, her platinum blonde hair is almost white. It looks white. I'm telling you, this place is huge. They have four floors of the most extensive collection of Hollywood memorabilia in the world. I've been there a couple times, and one day is never enough for me to see everything. It's too easy to get locked down into one or two things when there's so much history surrounding me. My kids and I really love the Dungeons of Doom downstairs, filled with an eerie creepiness that haunts over you as you check out real costumes and props from your favorite horror movies and shows. I'm talking about The Walking Dead, Freddy Krueger, Jason, Chucky, Boris Karloff's Mummy, Vampira, Frankenstein and his bride, Elvira, E.T., Annabelle, Aliens, and there's so much more. I can't even I can't even tell it all right now. We even walked through the actual prison corridor set used in the Silence of the Lambs, and I genuinely got scared at the Hannibal Lecter jail cell. It's filled with authentic props from the movie, but I'm not going to spoil it for you. You're going to just have to see what's so scary about it for yourself. All that being said. Donnell tells me that the basement has much more of a layered history than just scaring people. Now, my godmother, her father was a vaudeville star, and her mother came from was one of the original five from one of the original five Spanish land grant families here in California. So they would come down from their home up on the hill, and sometimes they would bring my godmother with her, and they because of course there was nothing like. If you're under 18, you can't come in. It didn't exist in those. Right, right, right. And so they'd bring her and they'd park her in a booth. And she, uh, when I brought her to see the museum or to see the building before we started the museum, and I was thinking about purchasing it, I asked her and she said, you know, Janelle, there was another way that we came down here. There was a door. And we, I said, really, Marianne? She said, yes, yes, yes. I remember it plain as day. Well, if my mother, if my grandmother, sorry, if my godmother was alive today, she'd be well over a hundred years old. So she, 
said, I know there's a door, I know there's a door. And we went back upstairs to the main floor on the first level, and we went to the front door, and she said, no, it's not there. Now there's another front door that was used for the executives, because originally this is Max Factor's makeup studio, as well as where all the makeup was manufactured upstairs, as well as the executive offices. So we went to the second front door, we walk in that door, and she said, you know, this is what it is, but she says the door's not where it's supposed to be. So she starts knocking on the walls. And if any one of your listeners is in the construction business or a contractor or a carpenter, uh, they would know that sometimes when doorways are filled in, you can hear a little hollow sound when they put drywall on the side of it. And sure enough, mm-hmm. you, you could hear the different sound when she knocked on the wall. You could find the original opening. And that original opening had been closed, and it was now used on the other side of the wall. It was used as a closet. But that closet backed up to the back stairs that went down to the lower level where it's the Dungeon of Doom today. So we solved a great mystery. We know how people went down to the bowling alley and speakeasy during Prohibition days. Mm-hmm. So it, it's kind of fun, this, this building, the Max Factor building, if these walls could talk, it would just be phenomenal to think all these great actors and actors. Oh, my goodness, yes. Golden years, what they would say. Um, do, you, do you know, are there any pictures that exist of that bowling alley and speakeasy? Has anything survived time from that? Uh, there are a few, and uh, they are hard to come by, but there are a few of them. Mm-hmm. Very elaborate down there. Uh, quite amazing. I and, bet. Um, you know, my godmother, she remembers before it was popular to be a Shirley Temple, she remembers drinking ginger ale with a cherry in it with a little cherry juice. <laughs> her parents would park her in uh, the booth and they would be dancing or bowling. And she said she couldn't understand. She always thought her parents, gosh, they're so addicted to coffee. They've got coffee cups in their hands the whole time. Because they were drinking homemade bootleg gin that was made in the back uh, of the annex area of the building, where today it smells driving. And so, it, it, so many fun stories. Thanks, Donnell. And thank you, Jimmy. And thank you, Donnell, for sharing a little bit of your vast knowledge of Hollywood history. I'm already looking forward to our next chat. And also thanks to the Hollywood Museum in the historic Max Factor building, home to more than 10,000 authentic showbiz treasures. You can check them out at 1660 North Highland Avenue, right on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, California. Check them out on the internet at hollywoodvhollywoodmuseum.com. They're also on Twitter and, and, and Instagram at Hollywood Museum. Tune in next time for Hollywood History with Donnell. Let me take you to our leader. Leader of the Dodge Rebellion. The name is Charger. Dodge Charger. The first full-size fastback. Rebellious new ideas. Watch. Hideaway headlights. Taillights across the board. Four contour bucket seats. Full-length center sports console. Back buckets down. Cargo space up. Power V8. Custom features from every point of view. Don't you just wish you could own a dream car like this? You can. 
The new Charger is at your Dodge dealers now. The Dodge Rebellion wants you. When last we left our hero, Burt Ward was cornered by a lifelong fanboy. An excellent question from Jimmy. Bert handling things like a pro, but will he be able to escape by answering all of Jimmy's questions? Wait, the worst is yet to come. In any event, on that particular scene that you're talking about, mm-hmm. you gotta, first of all, I understand, the actors that came onto the scene, the guests, they love doing Batman. Why did they love it? Many reasons. Number one, if they had families, their kids were driving them crazy. Dad, you gotta go on Batman. You gotta go. That's the greatest show. You gotta go. And they were so precious to come on our show. The biggest of the stars, but they wanted to anyway. But one of the reasons they wanted to is that unlike being locked into a specific character, okay, I mean, with a limitation, you know, of being, you know, realistic, mm-hmm. they could be bigger than life. I mean, the Joker's laugh, Caesar Romero. He could make it as broad and as big and, and, and Frank Gorshin as the Riddler and Julie Newmar as Catwoman and Burgess Meredith as the Penguin and Vincent Price as Egghead. Mm-hmm. Every one of these actors were getting an opportunity to do something they never got to do before, which was make it as big and broad as they wanted to. And they loved it. So, coming to this particular situation, this was at the end of the of the episode. It wasn't the end of the film, but it was the coming what would have been the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. We're, we're going to have this gigantic egg fight with with Egghead at Old McDonald's Farm. Right, exactly. I know, Old McDonald's Farm. Well, I sort of started the thing. Let me tell you why I started it. Because we got all, we got, I know, hundreds of dozens of eggs that we could throw, right? Mm-hmm. And I just thought it would be fun because I, actually, I was a pitcher. In, 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 in high school, okay, I used to pitch baseball, hardball, mm-hmm. so I was really good at throwing. So I could control where I was throwing it. And, and sure, when we started doing this big scene, this, this is before the scene that I'm talking about. We did this, this wide-angle scene they wanted to get first. Right. Well, I purposely threw some eggs at the crew. <laughs> okay, and I was hitting them with eggs <laughs> while we were trying to sell them, right? And and they, they stopped and they said, Bird, what are you doing? Oh, it was an accident. You know, I was throwing these eggs and it just sort of slipped, right? Well, let me tell you, <laughs> the crew started throwing eggs at me. Okay, off, off, this is this is okay, and we and it was it was I had a great time. Okay, okay. well, at that I think is what that doing that, and they saw both Vincent and Adam saw me doing that. You, you understand? Mm-hmm. That got them to be a little. Right. Mm-hmm. So here was the scene that I think you're referring to. That what it is is Egghead gets Robin, captures Robin, and it's got me like in a, a neck hole, choke, not a choke hole, but he's got his arm around my neck holding. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And Batman comes in to save me, and they have some dialogue. Okay. Before and then, then there's a big fight. All right. Well, what it is is that when Batman comes in. Egghead starts breaking eggs on my head, right? Mm-hmm. He, and 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 so Batman says something like, "All right, Egghead, it's the end of the line for you," or something like whatever it was. He had a dialogue. Sure. And, Egg, and Egghead 
said, oh, yes, there's something that breaks an egg on my neck. Then Batman has a line. Then the egghead breaks another egg on my neck. If you understand? Yeah. So there's yeah. three eggs getting broken on my head. Now, these are real eggs. There's nothing fake here. Right. These are real eggs. Okay. And, and, and the three eggs get broken. And then the fight starts. Okay. Well, what Adam and, and Vincent Price did is that they purposely goofed up their lines. But they waited until the three eggs were broken on my head before one of them made a mistake with their lungs. So this took like, I don't know, eight or nine teeth. I mean, I had more than a dozen eggs broken on my head. And I'll tell you something. Even though it doesn't hurt, it still stings a little bit. Sure. And I had eggs going down, down the inside of my teeth, into my T-shirt, all the way down into my undershirt. <laughs> Sticky Ready to get Oh they loved it. They thought that was so funny. Well you if you watch the show, what you'll see is that when when they with the final shot that they use, I'm supposed to pick up a half a dozen eggs and kind of just go over and throw them at an egg man. Right, right. Throw them at them. Well I didn't do that. I picked up a dozen eggs. I was so bad at that. Okay. And you can see it. Right. I, I went jumped on top of it. I hit it so hard with those 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 eggs that it actually moved the egg on his head. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then I rubbed it in and rubbed it in. See that? It's right there in the filming. You can Yeah. And without the, the background knowledge, you might not even know what uh, what was going on. But yeah, you definitely are leaning into that a little bit. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> boy, Rob, really, really rough with him, you know, mm-hmm. and it was real because I was so bad about, you know, about their little joke, okay, and it, and it, but, but that, yes, that really did happen. Yes. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to know about um, your work with your foundation. Uh, you used to be known as the Caped Crusader, now everybody, you like to be called the Canine Crusader. Um, tell people I've gone to the dogs, literally. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, but actually, you know, it's all kind of tied together now because, you know, it's so funny. Here, uh, for all the years I did the Robin, and, and yet I've also done the, the more recent movies animated with my voice on it, mm-hmm. you know, and then the star in Hollywood Boulevard. And then my guest appearance uh, just a few months ago in December on Supergirl, okay, I, you know. Crisis uh, on Infinite Earth. Infinite Earth, right. Um, but at the same time, people say, well, I don't understand. How is it? How did you get involved with rescuing dogs? Well, my wife and I operate the largest giant breed dog rescue in the world called Gentle Giants. And we've rescued more than 15,500 dogs. Every one of these 15,500 would have been put to death if we hadn't rescued them. And we didn't just take them and put them in some yard or some building. Every one of these 15,500 dogs has lived in our house with us during the last 25 and a half years. We always had a minimum of 50 in our house, and still do, a minimum of 50 or more at all times, 24-7, 365 for 15 and a half, excuse me, 25 and a half years, and, and a total of 15,500 some odd dogs. And, and because these were the giant breeds that we rescued, because they're the person who had been rescued them had died, and all these dogs were being put to death in people's 
people had to give them up. And we thought it was such a terrible injustice that back in 1994, we started rescuing them. In fact, I said to my wife, Tracy, I said, honey, we can't let these dogs die. Even if it's just for a couple of weeks until we find somebody else to take it over, we can't let them die. She said, okay, well, it's been 26 years now, and we still haven't found somebody to take over the rescue. I mean, I thought it was going to be two weeks. It's been 26 years. <laughs> anyway, we, all these dogs have lived in our house, and because they have traditionally the larger ones have shorter lives, those that we didn't adopt, that we lost, okay, died, it was so devastating to us, so devastating, that we decided we were going to try to find a way to help them live longer. And we first developed a feeding and care program. It's, it's what we call our Gentle Giant Special Feeding and Care Program. That actually, if your listeners follow what we do, and they can find it right on our website, GentleGiantsDogFood.com. They go there, there's a menu at the top of every page. They go to that section, there's a special feeding and care program. They can add three to five years minimum for the life of their dogs just by the way you care for them and feed them. How do we find this out? Because just imagine if you live with 15,500 dogs over yeah. 26 years, 24 hours a day. I mean, even the most not sharpest person would have learned something. Right? Yeah, you're bound to learn something. You can't help but not learn. <laughs> so in any event, we did that. And then we created this food called General Giants that we now have at stores all across the country in Walmart, now in Target, just started recently in Target. And again, we take no money for this. We don't take any salary. This is all about loving animals. So we made what we felt was the finest dog food in the world. And we believe it's true because to my knowledge, no one else in the world has dogs living up to 27 and a half years running around like puppies in their mid-20s. And of the more than 50 dogs that we have here now in our rescue, okay, more than half of them have already lived twice their normal lifespan. This is real. This is not made up. Right. This is not, you know, it's the real thing. And it's our charity. We take nothing from it. And all we want are these beautiful, wonderful animals that are what people call man's best friend to live to their full potential, which is to their mid to late 20s, not the 8, 9, and 10 years old that so many are living. And people say, well, how can you? How can you do this? Have you discovered the fountain of youth? And the answer is no. We haven't discovered the fountain of youth. What we have discovered, though, is that um, other dog food companies put fat into their dog food because it makes dogs hungrier to eat more food. In other words, if you may remember 10 years ago when a man named Morgan Spurlock went into a McDonald's, ate mm-hmm. every meal at that McDonald's for a month, he gained 55 pounds and almost died. They made a movie about it called Super Size Me. Mm-hmm. It's the same mm-hmm. principle. Dog food, of all the ones that I've looked at, are full of fat, both on the inside and greasy on the outside. Just your listeners, tell them, go feel their dog's food. Feel that slightly greasy feeling. Well, you wouldn't put bacon grease down your garbage disposal because you know, unlike water that evaporates, animal fat coagulates. And when it hardened, you'd be buying a new garbage disposal. So when you realize that animal fat coating dog food will ruin a metal garbage disposal, what do you think is happening to the arteries and intestines of dogs when every single meal, every single bite, every single kibble is encapsulated animal fat? We don't do that. Our food is pure nutrition with no fat. So the point of it is, is that because of 
and we take no money from it. So our dog food actually retails for about half the price of what you pay in a pet store. In fact, our motto is half the price, twice the life. Our, our food has become enormously popular, not just in the United States, but also in Canada. It constantly is sold out in all the 407 Walmarts in Canada. And anyway, so the, but what we want to do is we don't want to take anything from it. We just want people who love their dogs to be able to keep them longer. And I got to tell you, it's so funny because there are some people who say, oh, my gosh, you and your wife have become so nuts about dogs. Why don't you do something for people? And I say, wait a minute. If I help you keep your dog an extra five or ten years longer, don't you think I've done something for you as well? Mm-hmm. And they go, oh, yeah, well, I never thought of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's our charity. And we, our lives have become charity. And it's so funny because now there's so much Batman stuff, and I have this wonderful relationship with Warner Brothers, and there's, I'm going to be doing a whole bunch of things in the future that I can't talk about now. But 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 it, it all kind of works together. You know, on, on Batman, we were saving Gotham City citizens. Now we're saving a different kind of canine citizen, you know. So it, it, but for real, it's not that I've ever seen. Yeah, it's so funny because people say to me things like, "Well, you know, when you started doing those animated movies and the character again, was it hard to get back into the character?" I said, "No, because if you know what happened in the series when I was selected out of more than eleven hundred young actors, the producers came to me and said, Bird, We've chosen you because in our minds that if there really was a Robin, forget television for a minute, if there really was a Robin, you personally would be it. So we don't want you to, quote, take on this character. This character is you. We want you to be yourself and be enthusiastic. And that's all I did for 120 episodes. So it's not like anything ever left me. You know, trying to figure out who, you know, I mean, or, 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 or you, you sound like yourself, you talk like yourself or whatever. And of course, because it was me, it wasn't some character that I was taking on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that informed future incarnations of that, that character, uh, with, with, as far as the youthful enthusiasm and all that. And, I, and they, and, uh, we would be, we can't overlook the holy aspect of right. of what you brought to the of what you brought exactly. to yeah. over four hundred of them when you count the Batman movie three hundred and eighty in the in the series but 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 in addition to that you know there's been a, a whole resurgence in in the oh in the last ten years you have this whole Batman sixty six comic book series mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. you have all this Batman merchandise where they change. You know, if you look at the original character, he had, like, kind of curly hair. Well, if you look at the Batman 66 merchandise that people have, every item you can imagine, T-shirts, the toys, the Batmobile, everything, they they change the character to look like me. Yeah. They change the character. Mm-hmm. So, and, and it just goes on and on and on, and there's people love the show. It's in reruns all over the United States. It's in a number of countries in reruns. And there's a special fondness that people have about Batman. And one of the nicest things that I, I remember I, I, I was doing an interview with uh, a writer from the New York Post, and he wrote the nicest 
thing about there could never have been another Robin like what the Burt Ward did. And, uh, and, and I think it was because I was not acting. When I went out there, okay, Adam and I, we played it. I mean, we could play it. We became it, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. And I love fight scenes because I'm a black belt in karate. I could hardly wait for the fight scene, mm-hmm. you know? And and uh, and there were some times where it got pretty rough because the stuntmen sometimes weren't very good with their punches. If I got hit by a punch, believe me, they got hit back. I mean, there's some pretty realistic fight scenes on Batman, all of which I love. And don't, uh, speaking of fight scenes, don't you oh don't you hold the distinction of having the first on-screen fight scene with Bruce Lee? Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Well, here's an interesting thing, piece of trivia, that in addition to Bruce Lee's first film fighting of his career was fighting me, that Bruce and I were actually friends separate of the show. Mm-hmm. And we lived in the same um, cluster of condominiums. And that during the series, this was when, um, you know, his wife Linda and they had their son Brandon. Brandon was at the time only six months of age. That, that we would go down into Chinatown to have dinner. And because Bruce had lived in Hong Kong for 10 years, I mean, he had this, all this custom stuff made by the mm-hmm. restaurant. Mm-hmm. He would not, not even on the menu. So I was tasting all these delicacies that you know I would never have expected to have. But we were friends, and um, we actually sparred together. You know, which is the fighting that you do. You pull sure. punches. Still very rough. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, and uh, we had a lot of fun. We it was a a good friendship that we had, and uh, it was. Uh, it, it, for me, uh, later on, um, uh, I, uh, I mean, of course, we, we lost Bruce, and it was a terrible loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was so sad about it. But and, and, uh, actually, a few years ago, in 2015, I was um, inducted into the International Karate and Kickboxing Hall of Fame. Oh, and this honor! I have a huge, beautiful plaque, and it was a it, it was a big event in Las Vegas that. It was a, it was just a, a great honor, but you know, so I've got a lot of wonderful memories from the show. You know, I mean, there was also some memories of how dangerous it was because I ended up in the hospital four out of the first five days, the emergency hospital, with you know, second degree burns, uh, a broken mm-hmm. nose. I mean, it was it was more dangerous then than it is today to make television shows. Well, yeah, uh, I, I, of course I wasn't there. I didn't live through it, but I, get, I can only imagine it was a little more fast and loose back then, back then, and and probably a lot of safety procedures we have in place today are, are as a result of what happened to you on the set. Yeah, well, I'll give you an example. On one one day, okay, that uh, there was we were this is from the Riddler show. It was the first show with uh, Frank Gorshin and Jill St. John. captured and then Batman realizes the 
and obviously I'm still, uh, uh, you know, being controlled by the by the Riddler. So he goes back to rescue me, and there's a scene where they break through the he breaks through the subway wall, supposedly a subway. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. and the, the the studio was supposed to build a breakaway set. You know, that's where they used balsa wood. It's that very light thing that you know it, it looks like real wood, but it's just so fragile it just comes apart. You know what I mean? And they uh, and and then they use what they call a magnesium charge, which is uh, a extremely loud and extremely bright. It's like a big explosion, mm-hmm. and it's extremely hot. I mean, you could really you could be severely burned by that. But in any event, the idea was they were going to set this charge where as though Batman used dynamite or you know to break through the subway wall to rescue. Well, anyway, the long and short of it is the studio forgot to build a breakaway wall. They built the subway like you build a house with two by <laughs> four, right? Uh-huh. Now, now you've got no time to take three weeks to rebuild that wall as a breakaway wall with all the crew and everything had to be finished. So what did they do? Well, the special effects guys and their infinite wisdom, which I use the words very loosely, right? to use two half sticks of dynamite, real thing. And they nearly blew this entire soundstage down. <laughs> the, and I remember a two-by-four. I'm tied down, my, my arms to my side. Mm-hmm. And a two-by-four comes down and hits me on the bridge of the nose, breaks my nose. Had to go to the emergency hospital. I mean, and I, I tell people that, you know, I should have suspected something was wrong. When it's 7.30 in the morning, as I'm tied down and these special effects guys are loading the charges, it took no liquor on their breath. Yeah. <laughs> That's always a bad sign. That should be a clue, right? Yeah. There you go. Um, you know, I we were talking earlier about the um, your award ceremony uh, for the Hollywood Walk of Fear Star and the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and then we had that part, the Batusi party. But what kind of stuck out for me most on um, what could have been your day, a pretty much big celebration of, of, of you and what arguably should have been, you and your wife, Tracy, uh, took some time out to celebrate other people and gave out an award, the Superheroes to the Rescues the Award. Rescue. Right. Right. And, and, you know, we found, Tracy found some really unique people that, that do things. As an example, she gave away four awards, but just as an example, here was a young man that, uh, a big Batman fan, Mm-hmm. That he dresses up as Batman. He's got his, himself a Batman costume. He dresses his dog as Robin, mm-hmm. and 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 he. I, I get the feeling he's not wealthy at all. He's just a regular person, but he's a pilot, and he rents an airplane and flies to various states, picking up dogs from shelters that were going to be put to sleep, and flying them. To, a, to other states where they could be into a person's home. Mm-hmm. In other words, like you could have an a, a animal shelter in, in Paducah, Kentucky, that's got these dogs that they weren't able to adopt and they're going to put them to sleep, and yet and there's nobody locally there that wants to take those particular dogs, but somebody in Texas was willing to take them, and he would take his airplane, flies the airplane in a Batman costume. Mm-hmm. The dog is in the passenger is Robin, mm-hmm. okay? I mean, he's got the video of that. Well, you were there, you saw it. Right. And then he goes and, and, he, and he, you know, goes to the animal shelter as Batman. He, he gets that, those dogs, he gets them in the plane, he flies.
size as Batman to the location turns him over. I mean, what an amazing thing. He probably spends his last dollar doing that. Yeah. His charity. You know, he's not wealthy, but he finds a way to get by and get it done. And it's that kind of real and superhero to me effort that he makes that, that needs to be rewarded. And he was so thrilled when he gave the award. And, you know, we had videotaped and mm-hmm. stuff. It, it just turned out really, really great. And we had other people that we gave awards to. Um, and uh, it, it just was a, a very special day for us because, again, for us, it's more about the giving than the receiving. You know, I mean, I have all the toys and things that I can play with. And my wife and I now are focused on what can we do to make a better world for all of us. Mm. Yeah, like I said, that's what really for that whole day. Uh, I mean, obviously, it was different for you, but for me, that's what. In the midst of everything, your your ceremony, that party, the big Batusi party, in the midst of everything, you guys took out time and and not even took out time, but made a celebration to celebrate other people who are doing doing uh, especially good work for the community and for the animals and stuff. So I, I that's really impressive. Well, thank you. Yeah, I know Tracy would would, would appreciate it. And- and I yes, it. I know she worked really hard on that as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and the thing is, she dresses up as Robin's girl, mm-hmm. as her Robin's girl outfit. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, and she's just into this so great, and she's always coming up with more ideas for more charitable events and this and that. And uh, and it's fun. I mean, I, I'm telling you, I think she has more energy than me. Though. <laughs> <laughs> Even when I was playing Robin, uh-huh. and I'm known for having boundless amounts of energy, but I think she has more than I ever had. Uh-huh. Um, well, you know, from your from the first time you said Holy Barracuda uh, to the last time you said Holy Crimson Skies of Death, uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths, you've done the recently you've done the cartoons, the Return of the Cape Crusaders, you've done so much uh, in your entire career, the show, the movies. Um, what's uh, the animated series Adventures of Batman what can you what do you think maybe hold is left in the future for Burt Ward oh you know uh, the best way to describe it is to describe a scene from one of our episodes <laughs> where Commissioner Gordon calls Batman and Robin into his office okay this is for the Batman movie we did if you remember the movie with the four villains of course where he he has a line and he says to Batman he says Commissioner Gordon says, he says, Batman, he said, any one of these four heinous villains could wreak havoc on Gotham City. But the idea, the concept of them joining together, the four of them, what do you think, what do you think they have in mind? You know, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and Batman very stoically says, he says, I think their minimum objective is the entire world. That's the it. Minimum the minimum objective. So that is our minimum objective, the entire world. That's great. And I'm sure you can do it with the, between you and Tracy. You definitely get you definitely got the energy. Uh I don't think that should be a problem. Um really quick one more question before I let you go. When I was a little shaver uh fighting crime, I would uh sit down for my um Saturday morning bowl of cereal in the syndication. I'd watch Batman and Robin, you and Adam fighting crime. So I'm wondering when you sit down, whenever you have your relaxing time, whether it's Saturday morning and enjoy a big bowl of cereal, what is your favorite cereal? Oh my gosh. Well, you know, um, 
that is a great question. That is a really great, great question. Um, but in, 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 in all honesty, I there was a cereal that I ate as a child. It was actually, I think, more of an adult cereal, and it was grape nuts. Grape? I, I, I always liked the grape nuts. Everybody said, "Oh, well, there's no sugar in there, and bitter, and all of this kind." Of stuff. But I actually, I actually like that, and uh, and that brings back uh, fond memories, you know, mm-hmm. of, of, of of my childhood growing up eating that cereal. That's a that's a very serious cereal for a very funny and uh, charming guy, Bert. I want to thank you so much for your time. Um, thank you for helping us celebrate 80 years of Robin and sharing your memories. And especially thank you for adding a certain air of legitimacy to our first episode of the Retro Cool Nerd podcast. Um, do me a favor to give your wife, say hello to your wife, Tracy, for me. And I hope you guys are staying safe and clean and everything and everything's going well for you. Well, okay, and I'd like to conclude with this thing. To the Batmobile! Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Bert. You're the best. Holy elongated career. That guy has seen a lot, huh? What a life. Do me a favor. Please check out Bert and Tracy's dog rescue efforts online at GentleGiantsDogFood.com. They truly do do a lot of good work there, and if you get a chance, check them out. GentleGiantsDogFood.com. I also want to thank my good friend Danelle Dottigan from the Hollywood Museum for sharing that wonderful look into the secrets of Tinseltown. I bet you might not have known about that speakeasy located in the bottom of the Max Factor building. Pretty cool, huh? I look forward to Donnell joining us each and every episode to share stories and secrets from the vintage days of Tinseltown. Well, citizens, I want to thank you for joining me on the journey through our very first pilot episode of the Powcast. I think you're really going to enjoy my showgram celebrating all things retro, cool, and just a little nerdy. I am Jimmy the Gent. You can dig me on social media at SDBatman66 or at RetroCoolNerd. Also check us out over at RetroCoolNerd.com. Special thanks to Bert, Tracy, Donnell, Marky, Grimshay, Saturday Morning Serial Studios, Roger, and my family for suffering through this madness, and mo- most of all, each and every one of you citizens that listen to my fever dream brought to life. This has been a Saturday morning serial production. Don't forget to tune in next time. Same POW channel, same POW cast. You ready to go, Bert? To the Batmobile! Yes. Can we have the office back? Can we have the office back?